Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to Beyond Black History Month. I'm your host, Femi Redwood. On any given night in New York City, you could find a place to go dancing, packed clubs, long lines, and music that made some regret their choice of shoes. Granted, this was pre-COVID, so it's a little bit different now. But did you know much of the club and nightlife scene is rooted in black queer culture? You may be thinking clubs and parties have been around since the beginning of time. Undeniably, Mesopotamians probably had really good parties. Apparently, they made beer that had the consistency of porridge. In all seriousness, historians say massive parts of nightlife is an evolution of the subcultures created by black queer people. And even further, this surpassed nightlife and became a big part of pop culture. But the contributions to nightlife from the black LGBTQ community often goes overlooked and underappreciated, even from those within the queer community. To understand how this marginalized group impacted the world, we have to include the story of how racial division within the LGBTQ community impacted black queer culture. We begin in the 1960s when apartments in Chelsea rented for $100 or less, gas was 34 cents a gallon, and a cup of coffee was less than a quarter. In some ways, though, it's important to remember that like a lot of these bars that we now consider are queer bars, there is really nothing that makes them queer with the exception that queer people are going to them. They're not advertising themselves as gay bars or lesbian bars or queer bars. That's Eric Gonzaga. He's a historian of race and sexuality in America and teaches at California State University Fullerton. He's also writing a book about the history and culture of gay nightlife. Eric says even from the earliest days, there was a racial separation in queer spaces. You know, it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about, but I think it's one of the most foundational parts of LGBTQ history is understanding the role of race in modern LGBTQ American history, but also the role of racism. In my own research, I often read about the gay community 
and the black gay community, which is really interesting, right? Because we assume that, that the idea of the gay community is run by and mostly populated by white people. Eric says in the 60s, LGBTQ people would call a number. It was sort of like a telephone switchboard that had operators that you would see in a movie or TV show based in that period. But they would all call this number, be totally anonymous, and find out which bars other queer people were going to. I'll let you guess what the first thing they mention about every bar. From the beginning of the 1960s, you had this divide among white gays and black gays. And I argue, especially in nightlife, that race is a defining, if not the defining feature, whether a bar is white or black, and in some cases, in some parts of the country, Hispanic or Asian is one of the most important things for queer people to know before they go to them. Do I have any proof of that? Well, there's a lot of proof of that. One is that many bars talk about this as being a black bar or a white bar. I've done some research looking at switchboard logs. So for instance, many cities across the United States had these, this is before the internet, right? Before many people didn't have access to travel guides necessarily, and she went to a gay bookstore or something. So if you wanted to know about where to go, you were, you were visiting Philadelphia, and you wanted to know what is the good gay bars? In the city, you could find an advertisement, say the gay switchboard of Philadelphia, and every almost every single switchboard kind of flap. The first thing that's mentioned is not the address, it's not the drink prices. The first thing that's mentioned in almost every single bar is the racial demographics. Simultaneously, the 60s saw major moves for queer people. In 62, Illinois became the first state to repeal its sodomy law, which essentially decriminalized same-sex relationships. In 65, LGBTQ people in Philadelphia picketed outside Independence Hall over the lack of civil rights and protections for LGBTQ people. And then, in 1969, Stonewall. Stonewall is a turning point. I think it's this huge debate about, you know, is this, is the Stonewall actually matter? And I'm a historian who I, I like to tell people all the time, when I first became a historian, I kind of like, like to fight against the idea that Stonewall mattered all that much. One of, one of the things that makes Stonewall such an interesting event, this, this, this bar riot that begins in, in June of 1969, is that it's relatively not covered in the gay press, in the early gay press. But most gay people across the United States don't know about the Stonewall until about a year later. And I used to be like, well, because it wasn't well known nationally, like, is it actually a turning point? But as I've become a a more mature historian, I've actually realized that Stonewall is a turning point here. And I know this because of the number of, of gay press periodicals that are coming out, the number of gay bars that are opening up across the country. There is a newfound optimism that, yes, it's still a scary thing to come out and be open about your sexuality and being able to attend gay spaces like bookstores or bars, but at least you're in the comfort of a lot more people than you were a couple years earlier about coming out and trying to you know, build a community of safety in different cities. Even when you look at 1969 and the Stonewall Rebellion, and you begin to see communities create itself in response to that, especially white gay men. White gay men begin to create communities. That's Michael Robertson. He's an artist, activist, and professor of Vogology. He's been a member of the ballroom community for over 20 years. I'll explain what ballroom is in a little bit. It is not a scene from Cinderella. I mean, when we think about gay clubs, the, the trajectory was around, oh my God, we're free now. And so we need to create spaces to reflect that freedom. Where it was reversed 
for black gay men. Oh my God, they know about us now. And so because they know about us, we need to create spaces to keep us safe, to keep us hidden, underground. African-Americans in many cities, the commercial space was expensive. It was hard to own spaces where, you know, you could serve alcohol. And so for a lot of, especially people of color, African-Americans particularly, Hispanic-Americans, in order to like have a place where queer people can gather safely, one of the things you would do is you would have these, you know, house parties. And so many, especially for people of color, you had a kind of a, a continuous house party circuit in many metropolitan cities across the United States, particularly aimed at queers of color. And in this growing scene of Black and Latino people, a musical gumbo of sorts was created beginning in the 60s. It combined the sounds of R&B, funk, salsa, and soul. In a few years, it would sweep the nation. Beginning in the 60s and into the 70s, and it's this kind of music that is kind of weird. It's sometimes mostly lyricless, although occasionally it has some lyrics. But what's really kind of infectious about this music is this kind of infectious thumping. That music was disco. This continuous music, and what what we'll eventually call it is like disco music. It's this idea that this music's never going to end, right? This kind of fantasy, this utopia, this nightlife idea, euphoria that has been long denied to queer people is going to continue. For so many people, especially queer people, it is the music of the time. It's what everyone wants to do on the weekends, and even sometimes during the weekdays, right? They want to spend their evenings having this kind of euphoric dancing time in their lives. Lots of these discos opened up nationwide. Many discos opened up across the United States. I mean, I'm talking about in thousands here within a relatively small period, 76, 77. By 78, discos are opening across the country. And even though many people know that it is the music of queer people, especially of uh, queer people of color, it's, it's able to cross racial boundaries. It's able to cross generational divides. Older people enjoy disco music. So do younger people, super young people, right? It's able to even across geographic divides. There are discos in the middle of nowhere in Indiana, and there are discos in Manhattan, right? So for me, disco music is a way for so many Americans introduced to the queer world for the first time. Disco was everywhere, thanks in part to the movie Saturday Night Fever starring John Travolta. The film is a classic, but it's also part of an American tradition, whitewashing black art. I also think that, like, disco became many things to many different types of people. The Bee Gees or John Travolta's movie was the first time it introduced disco music to people and it made them want to go to clubs. If people only associate disco with whiteness, right, and white culture, I think that can be a problematic kind of thing. The fact that disco itself was able to saturate the market like in a time period in the 70s where lots of great music was being produced, tells you how important it was to people and how many people enjoyed it. As quickly as disco came, it went. There's a huge backlash of disco that happened in the end of the 70s, partly as a result of like the Disco Sucks rally at in Chicago during a double hitter baseball game. He's talking about an event known as Disco Demolition Night. Long story short, on July 12, 1979, Major League Baseball teamed up with the rock music shock jock who hated disco music. They were having a promotion in Chicago's Comiskey Park. Bring a disco record, get in for 98 cents, and the shock jock would blow up the record. But things predictably got out of hand. There was a riot against disco, which super weird thing to get upset about, and the game between the White Sox and the Tigers was canceled. 
Some historians say the riot was because rock fans were sick of disco, but others say underneath that it was an expression of bigotry, saying it was a revolt against music by black people. Historians say the crowds weren't just showing up with disco, but anything black, R&B, funk, really anything you might hear at a black party or a black queer party. By the end of the 70s, with a huge backlash against disco, a new sound and scene would emerge, again, propelled by black and brown queer people. The death of disco, the death of something, is the birth of something else. House music. House music rose from the ashes of disco to being recognized as the sound of modern nightclub culture, the sound brought to us by black queer people. Enter Frankie Knuckles and Larry LeVan. People that know much more about disco than me say Frankie Knuckles and Larry LeVan are two of the earliest innovators who were central in advancing disco into house music. Born in the Bronx, Frankie Knuckles would go on to be named the godfather of house music. The death of disco, house music in many ways emerged from that space, from DJ Frankie Knuckles, who moves to Chicago from New York City and sets the stage, and that then opens up a particular space for black gay men. Frankie began a residency at a Chicago club called Warehouse. Historians say this is where he honed his house music sound. Meanwhile, in New York City, Larry Levin is also becoming known for his musical craft. Born in Brooklyn, Larry began a residency at a downtown club that not only helped propel house music to the world, but created the blueprint for every nightclub that came after. This was known as the Paradise Garage. I was absolutely too young, necessarily, to be going to the Paradise Garage. But the Paradise Garage, the notion of its title, Paradise, right? This theodicy, this paradise and this garage. Larry LeVan and Frankie Knuckles in many ways, right? I, I am a believer of the, but the two fathers that, that birthed nightlife for black gay folk in New York City. Paradise Garage, for me, was one of the world's best clubs. That's Egypt Labasia. We'll hear more from her in a little bit when we talk about ballroom, which I assure you, we're going to get to. But Paradise Garage was almost like a second home to Egypt in the early 80s. Paradise Garage was technically a queer club, but people like music. People like a good DJ. Larry Levin was the world's best DJ because his music, his mixes, went throughout the world. It didn't start, you couldn't get in until 12 o'clock at night in the first place. <laughs> they didn't open until 12. And the shows and the stars that used to come in there was so amazing. When Grace Jones came, and she came inside of a, inside of a cage. It was just amazing how this woman did what she did in the Paradise Garage. Paradise was just different. A feeling, a home, a freedom. Paradise Garage set the tone for the nightclubs because of the music, because of the ambiance. It was in a garage. It was literally a parking garage. 
that they turn into a club. Who does that? Historians say Paradise Garage was also the first of its kind of nightclub to put a DJ at the center of attention, something you see at clubs today. And I know, this sounds really random and like it's not that big of a deal, but this simple act created a different mood, felt through music, and that was powerful. The DJs sitting on top of this big thing in the middle of the club. And the DJ, in many ways, lyrics of the house music was the spoken word or the preaching word. And the the dance was the worship. Larry Levine becomes a superstar. Frankie Knuckles becomes a superstar. That it extends itself beyond New York City, beyond Chicago, that it opens up space in London and other places. Paradise Garage was the it place. But what made it significant is that it was a safe space for black queer people to be who they were without feeling the racism of many other queer establishments. Just like all black music is theological, house music was the theology of a people who were disenfranchised, situated between white supremacy and black homophobia. It gives people not only a soundtrack, but a protocol, a protocol of becoming, right? The death of something is the birth of something else. It's that the philosophy is about learning how to die. And so if that is the, the case, then house musical black gay nightlife is the rebirth of when you die from. For many African-Americans, they weren't interested in going to white bar, bar spaces, particularly because there were so much uh, racist policies that forbade them from entering the white gay world. And it's because of this, this racism at gay bars, you're requiring African-Americans to show multiple forms of picture ID in a time period where many people didn't have IDs, much less picture IDs, much less multiple forms of picture IDs, right? But also, even if they were to get into white gay bars, African-Americans were often denied service, right? Like bartenders would just ignore African-Americans who, sh who showed up. They were often charged different drink prices. They were charged high, you know, exorbitant drink prices here. Or the type of music was intentionally played. They refused to play certain types of music that African-Americans would want to listen to. R&B music in the 70s, right? Eventually disco music. Yep. Three forms of ID, higher drink prices, and the intentional refusal to play black music. So African-Americans, because of their experience at nightlife, felt like they couldn't really integrate with the white gay community, not just the white nightlife community, but also the white gay community in general, right? And this has profound effects on the gay community because when the gay community is going to be introduced to new challenges, say the AIDS crisis in the, eight, in the 1980s, because you had this segregated nightlife scene, but also segregated gay community, you're not able to tackle those challenges effectively because you have groups of gay people who don't feel like they're united. And then in the 1980s, the Philadelphia Lesbian and Gay Task Force called attention to this kind of racism. One of the most important things any group that wants something to happen, any activist group that wants something to happen on behalf of marginalized people is to have data. So they decide to create data and they have to become kind of like these social scientists in a way, right? And so they start logging in all the calls they get. They create a, a phone number to call in. If you have a racist incident, call in, we're gonna record it and we'll follow up with that bar. We'll follow up with the city government. But one of the most interesting thing that this task force does in Philadelphia is they kind of, they get a whole bunch of volunteers to go under cover as queer people. But decades later, this comes up again. In 2017 in Washington, D.C., a white bar manager asked for a black model to be replaced in an ad by a, quote, hot white one, unquote. 
The same year, a white Philadelphia bar owner was caught dropping the N-word. In 2018, the manager of New York City's Monster Bar was called out after he said one of their flyers looked like it was promoting a black night, and that wouldn't be good for business. We still are living in a very racialized, polarized gay community here, and that has historical roots. It's kind of the beginning of gay community. Eric says it's still a segregated culture that still hasn't been fully dealt with. Coming up on Beyond Black History Month, we'll explain ballroom and its influence on nightlife and pop culture. If you enjoy learning about Chicago culture and history, WBBM's newest podcast, Shades of the City, is for you. Join me as I go into the community to hear about the history of the Pullman Company that created opportunities for African Americans in the late 1860s. One of the major contributors to the development of Bronzeville, as an example, was the role of the Pullman Partners. Subscribe now to Shades of the City on the Odyssey app and Apple Podcasts. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome back to Beyond Black History Month. I'm your host, Femi Redwood. While Larry LeVan and house music were taking over downtown New York City in the 80s, Uptown, a subculture whose presence was mostly known only amongst black queer people, by decades end would be celebrated and copied until this very day. Ballroom. The ballroom scene is an underground subculture made up of mostly black and brown LGBTQ people who come together and compete in various categories. Some include style, dancing, and face. The competitors are usually members of different houses. My name is Egypt Labeja. 
the godmother of the royal house of Labasia. Yes, I know you've met Egypt, but I just love hearing her name. Houses are essentially a chosen family of mostly black and brown queer people, usually led by someone known as the house mother or house father. The children of these houses are looking for love, support, and guidance from their house parents and house family. Many of these children, who may be adults, were discarded by their own families for being queer. The house of Labasia is credited for creating the modern ballroom scene, thanks to the original mother of the house, Crystal Labasia. Two important things happened that pushed ballroom into mainstream pop culture. First, in 1985, a young white New York University student named Jenny Livingston meets a few house members voguing in a park. She decides to make a movie about it. And the second, the biggest pop star at the time, would release a song that makes her synonymous with the style of dance she essentially stole, Madonna and the song Vogue. Jenny Livingston for Paris is Burning, Madonna for some Madonna of a Vogue, and both created and told through the ethos and through the lens of white women. Madonna still today have not, has not, did not accredit Vogue as a cult production of the community that rose from. And then Jenny Livingston, though, there's so such tension between the Paris is Burning community and Jenny Livingston. Putting it bluntly, Egypt reiterates that tension. It was taken from us when Paris is Burning came out. That was the first taking from us what we built hard on. And they made money off of it and didn't offer the money back. And they're still making money off of this same movie every time it's played. Madonna's Vogue and the film Paris is Burning are both released in 1990, making the ballroom scene more visible than it had ever been. One of the things that one will say is that, one can say is that Paris is Burning is artistically wonderful. Artistically wonderful and culturally exploitative. And so what it does though is that it then brings to larger communities, even within black LGBT communities, this underground community. And so does Vogue. Vogue, even though Jody Watley and Queen Latifah had Vogue in their videos before Madonna did Vogue, the accreditation to this white woman and her nationalizing it allowed the ballroom to use both of these things to organize across the country. And you begin to see in the 90s these, the explosion of ballroom geographical regions. So the hypervisibility allows for folks who don't have access to create. That is sort of the benefit of hypervisibility. The flip side of the, 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 the cost is that it becomes commodified. This is a beautiful thing about ballroom that it invites the problem. It invites these dialectical tensions without feeling the need to reconcile. Today, ballroom is still popular, not just among the community that created it, but also Hollywood. There's HBO's Legendary, where houses compete against each other, RuPaul's Drag Race, which is based in Ballroom, and Pose, which recently ended its series on FX, which centered around the lives of black and brown transgender ballroom members from the 80s. 
Black LGBTQ people impacted nightlife and pop culture in ways the creators never imagined. When DJ Larry LeVan was spinning records at Paradise Garage in the middle of the dance floor, he probably didn't realize that in years to come, that model would be used at various clubs around the world. And when the community was creating disco, house music, and ballroom, they probably didn't realize how much of an impact it would leave this many years later. And while undeniably most people don't know their names, this doesn't take away their value or their impact. So the next time you're in a club and regretting those four-inch heels or binge-watching the latest show about ballroom or drag, I hope you take a moment to reflect on the names we introduced you to today and the names we'll never know. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying our Beyond Black History Month series, which will go beyond Black History Month, you know what to do. Hit that subscribe button. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and on the Odyssey app. Also, please rate and review our podcast. It helps us in the podcast rankings. Beyond Black History Month is a production of 1010 Wins and WCBS News Radio 880. Special thanks to our producer, Andy Egan Thorpe. The WCBS News Radio 880 manager is Tim Schaud. Ben Meverack is the 1010 Wins brand manager. And I'm Femi Redwood. Thanks for listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.